V Coffee Podcast is sponsored by KitchenAid, whose coffee collection is changing the way coffee is brewed at home. KitchenAid worked with baristas and coffee experts to engineer a new line of coffee products. The KitchenAid Burr Grinder allows you to extract the best flavor from your coffee beans by precisely controlling the grind level. The KitchenAid Precision Press Coffee Maker enhances the classic French press brewing method with an integrated scale and timer to precisely brew a bold, full-bodied cup of coffee. Exceptional coffee made simple with KitchenAid. A truly great cup of coffee is more than exquisite taste. We at Mudhouse Coffee Roasters believe great coffee means integrity and quality at every point along its journey. We travel and form close relationships with small farms from Panama to Indonesia. We buy the highest quality beans grown with social responsibility and ecological sustainability. Our philosophy earned us Roaster of the Year from Roast Magazine. When you order from us online, we hand roast and ship fresh so you get the sweetest spot of that coffee's expression. Rock on and go to mudhouse.com. You're listening to The Coffee Podcast, where our focus is people and our language is coffee. My name is Weston Peterson. And I'm Jesse Hartman. This is your platform for people-focused coffee talk. Welcome back to The Coffee Podcast. Did you know that coffee doesn't come ready roasted, brown, caramely, chocolatey, just from the ground? Of course not. It comes green and it has to be roasted. Who's going to roast these things? Oh, well, I guess you could in your popcorn roaster. I've tried that. It actually turned out okay. But there really is a skill to roasting coffee. You may even want to go as far as saying there's an art to roasting coffee. Today, I am excited to introduce to you somebody who knows a thing or two about coffee. Mark Michelson of Onyx Coffee Lab, who is the 2017 U.S. Roaster Champion. My name is Mark Michelson, and I am the head roaster at Onyx Coffee Lab. All right, Mark, and we we can't ignore the the grand truth, which is you are the uh, 2017 Roaster Champion. Am I wrong? You are correct. Uh, it has <laughs> been... Quite the ride, as we will probably get into, but yes, it was uh, quite the achievement of my very short career so far in coffee. And I'm really excited, Mark, uh, not just to talk to you, um, but also for our listeners. We have people all over the spectrum. Uh, Some people are roasting at home with popcorn poppers. Um, We have other roasters listening to the show, and so this is a great opportunity. I'm really excited to have you here, and I'm I'm thankful that uh, you, you jumped on with us. So uh, with all that said, let's jump into uh, one of my favorite questions to ask, which is, uh, what was your first experience with coffee? Was it wonderful? Was it, was it horrible? Could you, can you take us back to that moment and, and kind of talk us through what happened? Uh, yeah, I was around six or seven years old, and my mother and father were avid coffee drinkers. My father was the black coffee guy. Uh, in fact, he has this routine and it's still true to this day. He only cleans his coffee cup once a week. And if you cleaned it before that, you were quite in trouble, uh, from (laughs) the kid because he just did not want to get that taste out. And my mom, like I said, was a cream and sugar person. And so she would sneak us little, not even cappuccino cups, but sort of like that. And lots of cream, lots of sugar. 
And I remember just the, the, the joy that I saw on her face every time that she made me a cup. And so every time I drink a cup of coffee now, now with the cream and sugar, I really enjoy and remember those memories pretty fondly. So, yeah, so coffee's always been sort of a fond experience for you then. It, I mean, I have very similar experiences. My dad would actually sneak me little, uh, you know, the little creamer cups. Uh, yeah. He would yeah. actually like scoop, like with the little creamer still in there, scoop it into the coffee cup and he would sneak it to me because my mom was, you know, I, I had too much energy, so I didn't eat coffee. But um, so so you you started off, sort of in your childhood admiring coffee your dad drank coffee your mom would sneak you coffee was there any moment um between there and here where you were just like wow coffee is something really special like how did how did you end up where you are today at onyx coffee lab well um i at the time before onyx was as you probably read in the barista magazine article i was a pastor at one point uh, in pastoral ministry and different things of that nature, uh, going to seminary and such, uh, coffee shops are something that is the thing that you do. You go to there to study, you go there for appointments, and so the coffee shop to me was always some central location that would you would kind of get the gist of like what the town was up to by the goings on at the coffee shop, and so. I made it my business twice a week to go to a coffee shop locally and uh, do sermon prep meetings and such. And I happened upon this little coffee shop around here that um, John and Andrea owned. It, it was not Onyx. It was just another branded coffee shop that they just kind of ran themselves. And uh, from that, I just, I remember going there and tasting coffee and and kind of getting some of those flavors that they set on bags, but not really getting them as much as I would hope to have happened at the time. Sure. And that's that something strange happened or something terrible at the time. I got diagnosed with diabetes. And so I realized I couldn't drink those caramel macchiato type drinks anymore because I, I really loved them. I used to always make fun of myself because I didn't like coffee. I liked hot hazelnut beverage, whatever <laughs> or whatever flavor there was at the time. And yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm reading these bags and they're like, you know, it tastes like blueberries. It tastes like this and like that. Now I'm originally from Chicago. So I went online and looked for a, cause I'm in Arkansas now. I looked for gotcha. a place up North where my dad lived and just wanted to get some coffee sent here. So I got some coffee sent here and just it was a breakthrough because I quit eating sugar all the time, not to say that I don't at some point now. And I tasted coffee and it was a I forget what house blend it was that Intelligentsia had at the time, but one of the notes was apple. And that for the first time in my life, it was an aha moment. I tasted apple and coffee. And from that moment, I just I would bring coffee to the shop that where John and Andre ran and owned. And I would just bring them coffee from any and every roaster I could find online that I really enjoy to get them to help experience. Because at the time, Arkansas was not very versed in third wave coffee. Sure. So so at this time, this is pre-Onyx, correct? Yes. Pre-Onyx, this is, uh, how many years ago do you, would, you, would you say? 
this is 2010. 2010. So yeah, um, not too far behind us, but like, no, I don't know, seven years, I guess that is. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you you were, so Intelligentsia was kind of your aha moment with that coffee that tastes, you could taste the apple or that tasting note in the coffee. And would you say that was kind of your beginning to this, to the wow factor of coffee? It was because I, I realized at that point that I could start tasting something that was actually on the bag. Because when you, you first look at a bag, it's kind of overwhelming. You see all these notes, and then you kind of feel like a failure if you don't taste it. And I always kind of felt like that, and I always kind of thought, well, this can't be, like, real. This, these cuppy notes are just made up right. for people that are snobby and everything. But, yeah, that moment really started me on a journey of really discovering what coffee was. And then uh, John noticed a lot of those things by me bringing in the bags all the time of coffee he did not sell, which, you know, that's neither here nor there, I guess. But <laughs> he uh, eventually was really curious about me as far as tasting coffee. and He wanted to get to the point to where he could roast for himself, rebrand the shops that he owned, uh, because at that point they owned three shops uh, by a different brand and they wanted to do their own thing. And they knew that if they continued on with that other brand that they couldn't roast for themselves because the other people had, uh, were still roasting. Gotcha. And, and so John approached me one time when I was doing some sermon prep. I had all my theological books there. My computer's open. And he said, you know, I'm about to start this venture. I'm not sure what it's going to be. I'm not sure what we're going to do. I just know that I want to roast for myself. And I don't even know if it'll work. I mean, one of his first ideas to sell coffee was to prisons. He didn't care who he was going to sell it to. He just wanted to sell his own coffee. Got it. And yeah, that's interesting. And so I was like, yeah. So I, I, I joined. It was me, him, Andrea, his uh, wife and co-owner, and his dad, Bill. And, I mean, there was just four of us. And we were just – we didn't know what we were doing necessarily. I mean, it was, it was kind of learned by fire. You just turn on the roaster and go at it. So you were you were selling uh, selling coffee at prisons? Were you serving coffee at prisons? No, 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 that that was what he was like. Hey, I'll sell coffee to prisons. I don't care who. Oh, I sell it to. oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we a matter we of speaking. To, yeah, we just wanted to. He just wanted to start something for himself, and he knew, as I think we may get into a little bit later, but all these people think they can get into roasting. And so they think that, you know, they'll just be good within, a, you know, six months to a year. Right. They waited two years before they branded Onyx in 2012. Wow. And so we, we roasted for about two years. And we didn't roast a lot. I mean, 75 to 100 pounds. Uh, and we got better as, as, like, I would take more educational classes, roaster skill retreats, befriending other roasters. But it was almost like two years before they actually branded to Onyx till we believed in the product we had. And I, I mean, it's not just roasting coffee either. It's sourcing green bean and all that too. There's, there's a lot more to it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's what cracks me up about new roasters that they see people doing it and they don't realize the sixty to eighty hours a week we put in. Uh, for about the first eight months of the venture, I just worked part time for coffee. I didn't even get any money. I just felt I saw the vision of what he was wanting to do. And I felt so compelled by that, that I was willing to give my time. And, it, you know, obviously now it's worked out to something awesome. But we didn't know. We were just, we just saw the vision. I saw his vision and I knew most weekends he would go 
you know, a 50 mile radius with a grinder, some water and some of our coffee to mom and pop bed and breakfasts and sell, try to sell coffee. He didn't care wow, if you bought yeah. a half a pound, a pound, five pounds. He was going to do that. And he did that every weekend. And I knew that if he was willing to do that, that whatever he set his mind to, I would be down to do it and we would be successful at some point. We didn't think it would happen this fast, but it's been, you know, five years technically branded as Onyx and two years of roasting prior figuring gotcha. out like how everything works. So two years of, of not being branded, kind of feeling it out. And then, uh, and then the rest of it has been Onyx. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. It's just been, yeah. 2012 is when they actually branded. Gotcha. So I have to ask you there, there must've been different coffees that you ran across coffees that were terrible coffees that were wonderful. Do you have any, any coffees that really stood out to you as either really bad or really good? Or did you have experiences like that? Oh yeah. We, we had a, uh, importer, I'm not going to say the name, but they convinced us that, uh, there was good Robusta at the time. Now remember this is 2011, and our grading didn't even exist at that point. Like some of the stuff that they're doing with Rebusa now was not even, it was still in the thought process. We tried a high quality uh, Rebusa, air quotes, that tasted like rubber and, you know, the little, like uh, in children's playgrounds after it rains, they have those little rubber pieces it's that are the floor. That's what it smelled and tasted like. I was going to say it smelled like NASCAR, but yeah, it was, it was <laughs> the worst cupping experience. And we bought a whole bag because we believed that the importer was selling us the truth. So we bought a 70 kilo bag and oh we gosh. probably had that bag for three or four years. We just couldn't do anything with it. I mean, it just was awful. We eventually threw it out because we just did not want to roast it anymore. I mean, the smell that you would get and the taste was just appalling. Now, on the flip side, a really great coffee was a, it was an Indonesian, it was a Bali natural that tasted of sweet earth and uh, watermelon. Wow. It was our first, um, we delve into naturals at that point, kind of a process type coffees. And that coffee was really a game changer because it allowed us to present to the public that weren't coffee fans at all for the most part. They're cream and sugar people in this area and show them a coffee could taste like berries and watermelon and we didn't add anything to it. And it was such a revelation because before that I had never tasted a naturally processed coffee. Oh, before that Indonesia. Yeah. Before that, uh, Bali natural, I had never tasted one. So it that was like, it was a, it was an aha moment. Needless to say, that's pretty. That's pretty uh, different than what I've heard before. Most people have that natural Ethiopian aha moment, like "Wow, this is you know blueberry." It's really cool that you had an experience with a coffee from a, a different part of the world. Yeah, it was. It was one of those that the same importer said that it would be good, and we tried it, and it was. I mean, it also was a lot cheaper than the Ethiopians. I mean, back then we weren't direct trade anything, and you're just basically buying. Uh, six bags, maybe maybe ten, and that that could last us six eight months. I mean, now we're going through. Uh, last year we roasted over one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and this year we're on track for I believe over two hundred thousand. 
at this point. So, I mean, we're going obviously through a lot more coffee, but back then, <laughs> importers were kind of sketchy because they didn't know what to think of our company. I mean, because, again, we're only buying three to four bags, maybe ten at the most. Right. Is that called and, spot buying or am I on? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Everything was spot. We, we didn't – as most of us know, all the great, great coffees are already picked up way before they ever hit the actual shelves in any importing office. Those spot can be delicious. I mean, we've carried them, and we still carry some spot coffees when we get into buying. But all the best coffees are already chosen and picked out and paid for before they ever hit the states. Right. So, I just I want to I want to kind of stay on that horse a little bit and talk about um, those beginning stages. What, what do you think was was the hardest part of the learning curve in the early stages of of roasting coffee? I mean, did you start on a good uh, roaster? Did you? What, what was all that like, and, and what were the hardships behind uh, beginning uh, roasting? We started on a Diedrich IR-12. He actually bought it brand new, and we got it delivered, and that was actually the machine I learned to roast on. Fancy. It Yeah, it, it was, man, they, I'd never been a barista. I had never done any of those things that everybody has to do before they become roasters. I started on a brand new Diedrich IR-12, and, and, and the problem with that was, and I don't think it's as much. It's still somewhat in the industry. But the roasting industry is kind of secretive for some reason. Yeah. Uh, I, I never get that and never understand why. Like when people ask me how I roast things, I, I am the type of person that will send them my profile. Because that doesn't mean anything. That's just you know a, a recipe by which I got this coffee to taste like this on my machine mm-hmm. in my environment. And so I was really struggling because especially even around here, nobody talked. Nobody would tell you anything. I would ask, you know, these questions and people were just so secretive. And so I developed a relationship with Elise from Go Coffee Go that owns that site. Yeah. Uh, and she hooked me up with Mark Kuma, which I don't even think he remembers. It probably would be funny for him to remember this, but I had emailed him and said, hey, at least told me to call you or text you or email you to get some info on roasting because I don't know anything about it. And he said, you know, he gave me a basic probat style roasting uh, thing. He said, from you hit first crack between seven and nine minutes and you develop it for two minutes after, say, and if you have control of the airflow, you do this and that at certain points. But then he ends the email really strangely and says, but since you roast on a Diedrich, Diedrich's roast different than Probot style roasters. So here's my friend Velton Ross that owns Velton's Roasting Company, and I think he would be willing to help you. That's fast forward a couple, yeah. yeah. Fast forward a couple days later, I get a hold of Velton, and for the next six months to a year, I probably talk to him at least one to two hours a week, and that's a low estimate of what he did for me. He would talk me through roast profiles. He would actually be on the phone with me as I was production roasting just so that I could tell him, hey, you know, this is happening right now. Why is this happening? And he, for no money, nothing, he didn't require anything, but just he was excited to help a person that was so interested in the craft of coffee. And like I said, to this day, I, whenever I get a chance, I tell people, he's really the reason. I mean, before him, nobody could give me real answers to why – 
you know, you add airflow here or you don't add airflow there. Why you drop coffees at this temperature and not this? And he was just like amazing. I, I, I can't say how thankful I am for his friendship. And, and Mark, I, I do have to say that free information uh, or the idea of just being passionate about something, especially in coffee, and just sharing it because it, I mean, really to, to share that information betters the entire industry. Uh, or I guess you could say it would better, you know, the third wave movement if we just shared information and we all pushed forward at the same rate. Or you, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of been an, it keeps coming up in the yeah. podcast. It definitely is one of those things. It's like until you become one of the cool guys or cool girls or whatever it is, so you become one of the cool people, you can't, you're you not in that crowd. And so those emails don't get answered. I, I, I Another funny story about when we first started, and I tell this a lot too, is I would call Stumptown's Roastery. I would call Intelligentsia's Roastery. I'd call Rituals. I would call Blue Bottle. I didn't care. I was going to call somebody and get an answer. And sometimes they would finally get aggravated enough that this guy from Arkansas was calling that they would answer one or two of my questions as long as I promised not to call back that day. <laughs> I mean, it, because I realized, again, I saw the vision of what this company could be, and I needed yeah. answers. This was before a lot of the books that have recently came out, yeah. a lot more of the social media and the YouTube channels that came out. And so I was just fishing wherever I could to get information on the web and or phone or email. I mean, I'm going to label you a go-getter at this point because <laughs> you you definitely put forth the effort. I mean, I, I just think it's hilarious that, that you, you were making calls uh, to the extent that, that they were like, well, fine, I will answer you. And yeah, uh, just but don't, don't call, call me back, back. today. <laughs> yeah, they were like, I remember, I think it was a telly uh, was like, you know, we're really busy here right now. We're doing full production. And I'm like, but I just have one question, please. I was like, I just don't understand why this is doing this. And, oh, you know, now I'm friends with a lot of these people. Sure. And it's funny to relate those stories. And it's like, oh, you're the guy that kept calling. Yep. I would call when you would put down a batch. I mean, I just, I needed to know the information. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's awesome stuff. I, I, I I can't imagine a more interesting origin story in roasting. I mean, you had zero, kind of zero coffee experience from a professional standpoint before you started roasting. Yeah, um, and, and that was that was the big thing is once I finally got answers to questions, then you can experiment, and then you could you can actually figure out. And, and the second part of the story really is, and as you probably can attest to, cupping, learning how to cup. Because roasting is all great and all, but if you don't know how to cup, you can't really tell what you've done. Right. If you don't know how to cup, if you don't know how to taste, um, yeah, that's problematic. I I try to tell tell the baristas I train that you know one of the best tools you have is your tongue, um, just because without without being able to know what you're tasting or to know you know how to even guide yourself in what you're tasting, you're it's kind of aimless. So yeah. That that was one of the big revelations we had too early on is we were we had heard of a guy named Tracy Allen which most people have now he was the SCAA well SCAA at the time president uh, he's a super taster he's a Q instructor he does brood awakening he does a lot of consulting stuff and we had found they lived in Kansas City which was not very far from us only three and a half hours north of us and we called him and asked him hey. We heard this thing called the Q, 
and we hear you're an instructor, would you be willing to teach us? Well, you know, John was willing to pay. Yeah. So we we had met with him and we brought him a coffee. By by that time, we had a natural Ethiopian that we were really proud of, and we we had said, you know, we're, we've been working on this. We think it's really awesome. What do you think? He tasted it. We actually brewed it for him. He tasted it. And he goes, well, if this is what you think is good, we have a lot of work to do today. <laughs> oh, no. And he looked at me and he said that to me. He was like, it's your, it's the roaster's fault. It's not oh, any, it's not what? the brewing. It's, it's his fault. And I, as much as I was just horrified, I ended up <laughs> taking my cue through Tracy and passed, thankfully. But like his, his thing was, and it's still to this day and it just, is in my mind you can't replace cupping like you can you could think that you're doing great in the roasting table or roasting forum but if you can't taste that and that was the that's the thing that i like you said i i when i train new people it's cupping and you can't you can't expedite you know expedite cupping it has to come in time you just have to do it all the time right. at every moment and that you know you can only get better from as long as you have good practices. Yeah, if you had bad practices, you're just gonna you're just gonna fail. Yeah, luckily we had learned to cup through him. What John and I used to do back in the old before Onyx, what we considered cupping was filling French presses with water that wasn't necessarily the hottest because we had one of those Curtis Brewers and a little tap on the side. Yeah. So yeah. we would fill we'd fill up six of them. You know, after the second French press of twenty ounces, that thing ain't hot. Yeah. Ain't hot at all. And so we're, we're doing six of those in air quotes again, cupping, because that's what we thought cupping was. And then we met Tracy and worked on that. And John and I both got our cue and we learned the practices of how to do it because it was a joke. We would have clientele come in and, hey, we're going to cup today. And some people that knew about cupping would see us with French presses and ask us what the deal was. So <laughs> we didn't, I mean, we knew, but we didn't know how to do it necessarily. Yeah, so yeah. it, a lot of a lot of experiential, you know, kicks in the face, if you will. Well, I, from an from an outsider looking in, I mean, at Onyx today, I, w- I wouldn't think that that those things were were happening. Yeah, <laughs> so. it's it, it, it's the reality of when you you jump into something, you don't necessarily know how to do it, but man, you're just willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, I'm, let's jump into a few more questions here. Uh, so, in an interview with Daily Coffee News, you said, "quote." Another thing is sometimes you can actually throw coffee in a roaster and get lucky, end quote. What did you mean when you said this? I was, I was super curious about this when um, you said it in that interview, and, and I wanted to hear you uh, talk about that, maybe uh, expound on it a little more. When I first saw that question, I kind of laughed because I, I figured that I didn't elaborate enough when I was asked that question. The, the, th- the whole thing about the format and, and, and what we did this time was we had to present the coffee, like our roasting theory behind what we did. And so a lot of times, especially when I first started roasting, and I would talk to roasters that said they knew what they were doing, and I would say, for instance, why did you do airflow here? And they would say, well, this is the way I was taught. They didn't know that if you add airflow, say, it's way too early, that the convection is going to cause the outside of the coffee to start roasting at a faster rate than the, than the middle, so you're going to have an uneven roast by the end. You have to let conduction work its force before you add air. Well, no one had that scientific reasoning or reasoning why do you do air at a certain point. And so, therefore, 
I, I just met so many roasters that could produce a good roast, but that couldn't explain what they did. They just kind of were following what they had been taught by other people, or maybe they guessed and got a good roast profile out of this. And what happened with this, the, at least the presentation portion, is we had to defend our roasting theory. We had to defend what we actually did and gotcha. why we did it. And if we didn't defend it correctly, we would get points off. And so you could have the highest – I've I seen one of the scores, especially on the first in Austin. I didn't have the highest cupping score. But my presentation, I got the second highest point total because I knew my roasting theory. I knew my green coffee knowledge, mm -hmm. and I was really accurate on my flavors, which those were the three categories by which we would judge. Gotcha. And so, yeah, so it's, it's lucky in the sense of not understanding why they're doing what they're doing in the roasting and, and the roast profile. Gotcha. And, and uh, just a question from me directly. I'm curious when you, when you talk about <clears throat> the, the way that, or when you should introduce air and when you shouldn't, are you able to do that on a small scale or is all this on the, on the main roaster? Yeah. On, on a Diedrich, Diedrich machines especially are set up for airflow. That is one of the uh, things that I really like about Diedrichs. I mean, they roast really clean. Uh, and so with the Diedrichs, you have full control over airflow at any given moment. So at the beginning stages of roast, uh, going back to how coffee actually is roasting, if you add too much air at the beginning especially, you, you basically get an uneven roast. And so airflow is important because it can cause the coffee, especially at certain points if you add a lot of air, to slow down during certain stages of the roast profile to kind of clean up the coffee, especially as it becomes exothermic and gives off smoke. And so you could play with air and air can really be a positive sign on the coffee. And it, it really depends also too, at what stages you put air. So if you put too much air towards the end of the roast, you could stall out the coffee if you don't have enough momentum. So airflow is, can be a great thing and also can be a curse because then you could end, just end up baking the coffee because you've stalled out the roast. Gotcha. And and honestly, I I've never roasted coffee outside of a popcorn ro pop popcorn popcorn roaster. Uh, so I you and, know I, <laughs> I've dealt with airflow. <laughs> yeah, well, at a popcorn roaster, you have a large amount of convection. I mean, you have some conduction because the beans are touching each other. Right. But you have so much convection, and so you'll notice with those coffees, especially in a popcorn popper, is even in a darker roast, they are very clean. I mean, you could even go, that's why air roasters, you can, some, some people will say you can go much darker without having those same tastes because at any moment that the coffee is giving off uh, any exothermic type of smoke, you're blowing it out. So a popcorn roaster, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this as much, but especially lighter roasted coffees are highly acidic because you've had sure. so much convection throughout the whole roast profile. Wow. I mean, this is super helpful even for popcorn roasting here. So I might have to shoot you an email about popcorn roasting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to the next question here. So Wes and I have discussed having too many roasters deliver underdeveloped coffees in the third wave world. Have you experienced this? And why do you think this is? I've unfortunately experienced it. Uh, it was one of those things when I, when I was doing Q, in fact, 
uh, Pete Licata's uh, thing is also in the same building. And so we'd have espresso sometimes and he'd be pulling us shots. Well, there was a gentleman there that was opening a cafe and had all these different roasters from all over the country send him coffee. And there were some coffees there that at their best day, there were a cupping roast. I mean, at their best day. I mean, they were so light, so acidic, but they were saying this was their house espresso. And so we would taste them, and it literally tasted like it was acid bombs. It, it, it tasted uh, – I actually, I talked to Schooly about this. He said it, it kind of tastes like lemon juice on stale Cheerios. Like it just has <laughs> that like woody, like cardboardy taste. And so yeah. I, we were tasting all these coffees and just so surprised that people would say this was espresso. Because it ain't going with milk. It's not. It's not going to cut through milk at all. Ain't and no even, way. Yeah, even as drip. So I, the reason I think a lot of it is too, and I used to be kind of, I used to be guilty of this, honestly, myself. It's because especially when you first start off in coffee, like what is going to differentiate your taste buds? A natural coffee because it tastes so wild mm. in a very highly acidic underdeveloped coffee because it's going to taste like nothing you've ever tasted before. So I think a lot of young roasters, I don't see this as much with the more known type roasters, the hearts of the world and such, because development is such a balancing act in coffee. A lot of younger roasters, I see this mostly because, again, they just, the acid to them is just such a poppy thing. They think that is a, is a great coffee. And another thing that we learned at Q and learned with training with Tracy was high acid bombs are not complex. And if you want a coffee that's going to score well and be round, it needs to be have nice acidity, but also nice body. It needs to have all those sugars caramelized right. so that it can balance out those those things. And that's something that I do That at Onyx. That is my main goal. Is, is My main goal when I roast any coffee is to balance out the acids because we roast pretty light. But I bring enough – I slow down enough, again, using airflow during the caramelization stage of roasting that really allows all those sugars – to caramelize in that vent, and that's right after yellowing, which when caramelization happens, it starts to brown. So from browning to first crack is your caramelization stage of roasting. And during that time, if you just negate it and you just blow past it, you miss out on the aromas that that stage magnifies, the yeah. body, and the flavors. And so if you really focus on that stage, you can roast light, like we, we have a lot of light roasted coffees, but they're balanced out with enough body and sugars to balance out that tart acidity. Right. And as far as, I mean, this is my opinion, but as far as conversion coffees go, the coffees that are, you know, helping people move from sugar and lots of milk to less milk and less sugar are not the acid bombs by any means. They, they are. They alienate more customers than anything. Acid bombs as an industry is unfortunate because it does that to customers. And also, it just becomes one of those things that, as coffee professionals, some of us like them. Like, every once in a while, I, I enjoy a good underdeveloped roast in the morning. If I'm really tired and I and I sample roasted something and I didn't go quite far enough, I'm the guy that drinks it because 
I know it's going to have a lot of caffeine. It's it's going to wake my taste buds up. It's not good. It's not tasty at all. But it's something that, unfortunately, the industry, as you've said, and I've seen, we all have experienced, is something that a lot of inexperienced roasters, and, and again, also, I think it kind of goes back to being able to defend your roast theory. Like, do they know that they're negating the caramelization stage of roasting? I mean, because if they do when they're still doing that, like, what's the point? Right. Can you defend your roast theory? That's a great question for roasters, even if you're a pop, popcorn roaster. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 is, that is the thing. Like, can you defend what you're actually saying and I mean, what, what's in the cup? I, I feel like in coffee in general, and I, I got to be careful, I got to tiptoe a little bit, but in coffee in general, in the third wave world, um, I feel like we need to all kind of be saying that thing. Uh, you know, can you defend what you're saying in general? Like, not even just your roast theory. Um, <clears throat> but moving along, to avoid all the criticism, um, let's talk a little bit about competing. I've never competed in coffee, uh, and I've definitely never competed in roasting or uh, the roasting sector. Uh, this was your first first year competing, correct? Yes, this is my first year competing with the caveat that I've roasted for Charles Babinski twice uh, during some of his runs uh, that he won the United States and such. Uh, I, I had the privilege of doing that. And I've roasted for Andrea in all of her runs. She got second last year, second this year, and for Dylan. So I've roasted for people that have competed, but I personally have not competed myself. Now, I'm going to say if I, if I was competing, I'd be super frustrated if this was like my third year and, and you just came in, you swept in like that. But uh, we don't have to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> was what was it like? I mean, it's your first year competing, and did you feel super confident after the uh, round in Austin? No, because I felt that I didn't prepare enough. Honestly, I just kind of winged it in a way. I got the coffee. I did a couple, three or four rose profiles of it. And was kind of good to go because, again, I'm also roasting for Dylan's coffees. I'm also roasting for Andrea's coffee. Gotcha, and also, yeah. at the, all given all of these things, I'm also keeping up with inventory and roasting for our daily roasting schedule. And trying to figure out like how all this works together. So, in the first one, I getting fifth was was one of those things that I was grateful that I did because I prepared in my presentation portion but I definitely could have done more on the roasting side as far as developing certain things that I did not. So it, yeah, it, it, it was scary, honestly. And so that, that first coffee was the Kenyan uh, Karundu AA. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. So what, what was challenging about that coffee? If you just could a little blip. The, the challenging part of that coffee was that, that it could have a little bit of underdevelopment tasting even when it was well-developed, if that makes sense. Like even I talked to a lot of the other roasters that, that roasted the coffee too, and even Cameron that won in Knoxville, and like you just had to develop that coffee more. And so I, I noticed with that coffee, like I, I probably could have done a little bit more, but again, at that point, I was just kind of stressed out trying to keep up with everything yeah. that – 
my own competition didn't matter as much to me. I wanted Andre to do well and Dylan to do well and the company obviously to produce good coffee so that we could keep selling it to wholesale customers. Right, so, right. Sort of a big picture. Yeah, because again, uh, you know, all these competitions are fun and, and they're great and I, and I, I enjoy the family aspect of it, the, the competitiveness, but the love that you feel between competitors. But at the same point, it, it doesn't, it didn't mean much. Like if I lost whatever, I, I mean, I saw the job on Monday and I need to go do right. it. So in, when you did move on, so you got fifth place in, in through the Austin round and then you, you moved on and then that national round was a, uh, a high elevation red honey process, Katura? Yes, uh, from Columbia, um, provided by Ally Coffee Importers. Very cool. It's, what what was what was challenging about that coffee? Did you feel it was a challenge, or did you feel like it it was like uh, spot on? Yeah, what was that? An, an odd thing happened with that coffee. So John had actually he was in Columbia during. Uh, last harvest and so we had actually picked up 25 bags of that coffee and I had already roasted through 25 bags from October to when I got the the coffee from Ally so John had directly sourced he was already there so I had already had like I said I did 25 70 kilo bags of that coffee in a couple of months so super familiar with the coffee so that wasn't the necessarily the problem with me I understood the coffee really well obviously Mm-hmm. The, the problem with this particular coffee is the the variation in screen size, all the way from 12 to 20. And so with that, with that crazy amount of screen size, you definitely are – you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot because, again, some of the coffee, if it's a 12 screen size compared to, say, an 18, it's just going to be an uneven roast. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, how, how do you compensate for that? Uh, as we all did, we sifted through the coffee. I did mine in the cooling tray. If I saw any outliners that were just way too big or way too small, some of the other people in the competition actually like literally screen size all 20 pounds that we got. And, uh, I believe it was Tony afterward had 13 pounds left out of the 20 after he figured out what screen size he wanted for that particular roast. Oh, Wow. And so I, I didn't do that myself. Like I said, I spent like 30 to 45 minutes in the cooling tray after I would do it to kind of see what the roaster product looked like and sift through mm-hmm. those different beans to make sure that when they did taste the coffee, it would be my, my aim was to get between 16 and 18 screen size because they're larger beans. And I knew that they would be pretty consistent in taste from the 25 bags that we had went through already. And so just picking through that really, I believe, uh, put me an advantage, again, being able to actually roast all that coffee before. It was, it was an interesting coffee to roast. And, and plus, it was another thing, part of it, sorry to interrupt you. No, uh, no, you're good. 2,550 uh, meters above sea level. That's how high the coffee was grown at. Good 2,550 is, is just crazy, crazy high. So... The coffee was really hard to penetrate. That was another thing I knew from roasting it before. So if I roasted a coffee, say, to a normal roast profile that I thought it should be, it tasted underdeveloped. And so what I ended up having to do, like with the, the bags I had before, was roast it longer than I would have ever expected to. And you couldn't go by color because it's a red honey process. 
And so some of it's going to just look black. Right. And so you have to get away from this idea that the color has to be this perfect brown hue. And just I had to develop it longer than I thought I would. And then knowing that they were going to batch brew it, I knew that I needed to go even a little bit further so that it would cut through the extraction process of a batch. Brew. Right, right. Yeah, I was I was actually curious. I, that's a whole nother topic, but you, that's a can of worms. Uh, brewing, or sorry, roasting for different brew methods. Yeah, and, and usually, and usually we don't. As a company, even like when we won the Good of Food Awards and everything else that we've won, we have never roasted for a brew method other than. With espresso, definitely trying to caramelize more sugar so that it is easier to pull consistent shots. Yeah. But otherwise, we just we just roast, and if it tastes good on the cupping table, well, it's probably going to taste good on you know whatever method you choose. But with this, these the coffees that I chose, well, the coffee that I was given and the coffee I chose, we definitely brewed it through the Curtis Brewer because we had the same brewer that they were using in Got competition. It. Yeah, use their recipe. And figured out what roast profile would best fit that. Very nice. And, and were they using a certain kind of water too, or because I feel yeah, like they, that would also affect? They were using global water systems. I I was let to I was told by my friend Adam, that's the head roaster at JBC Coffee Roasters. He told me if you go to Prima Coffee, that they sell the water packets like third wave water, but they sell it for the global water system. Oh, interesting. So, so what we did was we bought a whole bunch of it and brought it to the lab and brewed with that water so that we knew when we got to uh, Seattle that it was going to, we knew what the water, we knew what the coffee would taste like. Because the, the problem with Austin would happen, because we didn't have that water, is I get up there and I'm, you get five minutes before the presentation to taste your coffee. Well, all of my coffee cupping notes were wrong. Oh, because no. Because the coffee was so much more acidic in Austin, everyone and most of the competitors said the same thing. It was just the coffee, the water was somewhat phosphoric, and so the phosphoricness of the of the Kenyan just I mean it made it like there was a lot of acid bombs. Yeah, mine mine being a great example of what an acid bomb was. So all the notes that I said about like my roast theory of of actually taking this coffee and balancing out the sugars with the acid, <laughs> I had, I had to change my script. Oh, Five man. minutes before my presentation because the coffee tasted nothing like what I tasted. So, again, getting fifth to me was, you know, they say coffee professionalism. You get there, you have to kind of figure it out and go with the flow. Yeah. I, w I was really upset. I mean, I was just mad at myself and just mm -hmm. didn't know what to do. And so in Seattle, I wanted to make sure that I did every possible thing to make sure that when I got there, I didn't have to worry about changing my script or changing any of my cupping. Right. That is so wild. That's something I would have never thought about is the the water. I mean, give me long enough, I would have, but in passing, definitely not. So. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to be working with Third Wave on our new warehouse uh, to put in their water system into our... Oh, dang. Yeah, into our thing. So he's actually going to come up here, I believe, this summer. Uh, we were talking to him and try to figure out how that really works so that we can yeah. get all of our cafes eventually to taste the same. The same, that's, yes. That's the problem. We have, you know, so many, we have three cafes, we're opening a fourth, and they're in different cities, but we're in the same within a five, 10 mile radius. Well, in this one location, it's gonna, your espresso is gonna taste sort of like this. Your other location is gonna taste like this. The warehouse is gonna taste like this. And so 
where we have to, you know, look at our cuppy notes and, and look at the spectrum of taste when, when they're, when they're being pulled at different shops. And so yeah. we're wanting to have a consistency throughout all of our shops. So we're going to see how working with uh, Taylor at, at third wave and see how that actually works and, and hopefully just, you know, provide it at the end of the day, providing a consistent beverage that tastes awesome for our customers. And just, you know, because if they're going to get up early enough or late enough to come into our cafes, we want to do as much as we can to serve them and give them the product that we've worked hard to provide. for them. Absolutely. Yeah. I can get behind that. So Mark, one, one more question about the competition. There was a, uh, a blind cupping portion. Was this portion of the competition easy for you or what, what were you feeling? It, it sounds terrifying to me. As a cube grader and one that cups all the time, it, that wasn't scary. What's scary was that it wasn't necessarily cupping. So they were taking brewed coffee, putting it in bowls, and then, you know, slurping it from a spoon. Well, that's not cupping, as we both know. Yeah. So that was scary because you're you're not necessarily cupping the coffee. Neither are you roasting for a cupping roast. So that was, a, again... I'm roasting for the brew method, so I knew that if I did my job right with roasting this coffee, that when they did their thing in the back, that they were doing the blind tasting, that I would be okay because I realized I did enough work to know that when they tasted it, they would be tasting the things that I wanted them to taste. Got it. So just to clarify, they were doing a a blind a blind cupping in the back. Is that? that was a- yeah, that was a tasting before you actually got to present your coffee. I see. So, so in, cupping is kind of a miss. That's kind of not really correct naming, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I refer to and most some of the other competitors as a tasting because they brewed it in in the Curtis brewer and put it in the in the decanter, and then they would pour a little bit of it or pour enough in each bowl and do it blind. So it was only a number, so that gotcha. they didn't actually know. And so when we actually presented for them we would pour them another bowl from the same thing and then they would compare what they wrote down and what we were saying to make sure because one of the presentation scores was flavor accuracy. And flavor accuracy was the only one of the categories that was doubled. So again, I wanted to make sure that I got every single cup you know, right and accurate because I knew if I could get a, a double score on that, that I would put me in an advantage. Absolutely, yeah. That's, I mean, that's strategic. For sure. The whole thing is just, man, it's an amazing process. And uh, I have to congratulate you once again on that, uh, on winning. I mean, 2017 Roaster Champion. How's it feel? Like, like I kind of alluded earlier, it's it's been kind of overwhelming in a way. It's, it's been a validation, too, because believe it or, or not, I am my own worst critic. I talked about that in some of the other articles. Yeah. That's there's a lot of times when I'm roasting throughout the day that I will question what I'm doing. It, it comes back from my theological background. Like I always questioned everything. I wanted to make sure that what I was saying or, or whatever I was espousing that I could defend uh, with, with everything that I had. And so a lot of times I will be roasting and just think, am I even doing what I'm, am I doing it right? Right. What could I be doing different? What could I could be doing better? And so the winning really validated 
my personal demons of not feeling that I'm adequate enough as a roaster, if if that makes sense. No, it yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. That's a that's a really um, <clears throat> valuable thing I think to to go in and to have those criticisms because I I think you know on one hand it could go overboard and could bury you, but on the other it could just constantly challenge you to uh, be better. And uh, I think that you know the evidence or the proof is in the pudding in this case, and uh, yeah. you, you walked away or, with... or in the cooling tray. If you will. <laughs> the proof is in the cooling tray. Fair yeah. enough. And- and so it does. It, my my own self critique, my wife calls it my OCD, pushes me beyond what normally people would do. Because even like when I said when we first started this company, I wasn't getting paid for the first eight months, right. and I, I, mean, I was doing so many hours outside of my job as a pastor mm-hmm. of studying and doing whatever I could, and so it just kept pushing me, and it still does. I mean, I still don't think that I've learned enough, and know enough and so i'm constantly checking making sure what i'm doing is the actual right thing to do so there's no books on the way anytime soon is what you're saying yeah i i I (laughs) salute my friends you know rob who's that came out with that beautiful book and a lot of it he actually talks about that it's caramelization i mean it's it's really developing those things and so i was really excited when i read his book that i was like oh so i was right about this very cool yeah you know, to have some validation, and, and uh, like I said, I'm friends with a lot of people now in Morocco, and I talk a lot about gross theory life and just everything, and that was one of the things that we've always kind of talked about, and so, yeah, it's just validation. It's, it, it's surreal right now because I didn't really expect it. I, th- I thought that I could be a top six, if mm. I'm just going to be honest, mm. but I didn't know... Like, once they called the first five and Tony was second, I was like, well, either... I just won or I did horrid and I don't have any explanation why I would have done this and, and getting seven. I should say this before I get all the haters uh, <laughs> getting seventh is not a bad thing. Even getting top six is not a bad thing, but absolutely like, not. I just knew that I had put enough time and effort and did well enough that I figured I would make that. And once they called Tony, I was like, wow, I don't, I don't know where this is going, but if I do and, and then when she called my name, I literally, I don't know if you saw, if you were looking, Tony tries to hand me the trophy and I just pick him up and hug him. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. And then I, I walk <laughs> up to Jen and she gives me a big kiss on the cheek and I'm holding her and I'm like crying and she's telling me how proud she is. Like I, I, like I said, like I literally did not expect to win, but was like so thrown when I did. I It's kind of like when you prepare, like, I'm going to say a speech. I'm going to keep my composure. And I literally just look like, you know, a little school person, just like getting a treat for the first time. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. Well, we're, uh, we're hitting the end of the, the episode here. So I have uh, some final questions for you. Uh, and the first one is going to be, where do you see coffee going in the next five years? I thought a lot about this question today. And when you first send me this, I think it's more of a hope. I don't know if this is going to be the case, but my hope is that there's going to be a greater acceptance of naturally processed coffees and processed coffees in general. I, I still feel like as far as we've, we've come a long way as an industry accepting naturals. I mean, until he's about to serve two, I mean, that's a pretty outstanding thing to the cleanliness that naturals have become. Mm-hmm. But, 
But I think there's going to be a lot more innovation, as we've seen with La Palma and other things, in processing coffees. Not to say that washed coffees are not beautiful and amazing. I mean, we have some really amazing ones now. But I, I, I think processing and being able to control those nuances will become a lot easier to control. Or at least that is my hope. Got you. No, I, I'm excited too. I think, um, I think it is kind of moving in that direction. And La Palma is a is a great example of that. Um, They're actually just featured uh, in a Department of Brewology's uh, box set. And um, yeah, La Palma is one of those coffees you taste, and you're just like, "What is going on?" It's just it's a wild experience. Um, and that was the coffee that I used for my. Uh selective and that that andrea and dylan both used for their selective too was all the palmas nice very nice yeah that stuff's good man all right all right so do you have any resources you you'd like to recommend i know you mentioned a few books yeah Hughes whose book is is really good i i really enjoy joe morocco has a series that he does through mill city of roasting i think it's about 12 videos and they average from 30 minutes to an hour each if you have some time, I would definitely check those out. And just for overall knowledge, Nordic Barista's channel on YouTube has some pretty amazing speakers from espresso extraction to roast theory. Was, and uh, so I, what was that, Nordic Baristas? Yeah, Nordic Barista on uh, YouTube. And it has like 20 or 30 different videos from experts from all around the world, world including the States. That Rob is actually on one of the videos, too. And James Hoffman and other people just yeah, talking nice. about coffee. So those are my three main that I go to when I am uh, looking for my coffee fix, if you will. Gotcha. And the and the final question here is uh, maybe one of the hardest ones, but um, what what is your um, what is the single best piece of advice you've received through the years? Uh, it was actually Tracy Allen, the one that kicked me in the face with. Uh, the bad news when he said that you'll only be as good of a roaster as you are as a cupboard. Nice. Yeah. That, that's that advice. I mean, it's even making me think about my palate and like, man, I need to, I need to be cupping. If, yeah. It, <laughs> it, it, it's definitely a discipline that it, it takes a long time, but once you start getting the hang of it, 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 it it's, it just helps in every aspect of coffee. Well, Mark, thank you for joining me on the show and uh, for sharing your insight, uh, for sharing the stories behind uh, your experiences as a roaster, your experience at Onyx and uh, and beyond. And uh, it was a pleasure having you. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time just to talk to an old man, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I feel like one all the time. Nah, you know, old man. Well, after all of that, what is your roasting theory? What are you doing in coffee and why? I want to thank Mark again for joining us on the show. I want to thank you for listening. The Coffee Podcast is produced by me, Jesse Hartman, and my co-host, Weston Peterson. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on our website at thecoffeepodcast.org. You can find more episodes there as well. Find us on Instagram at thecoffeepodcast. Find us on Twitter at thecoffeepodcast, no T. Thanks again for listening, and happy brewing.